0: Hey there, I'm your host, Seth. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is a podcast that inspires positive conversations about safety, whitewater, education, and any other topics that have a beneficial impact on this amazing community I've grown to enjoy so much. So sit back, listen, and most importantly, brace yourself. On this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Chris Wing about experiential education and its impact on the whitewater community. Well, welcome, Chris. It's uh, great to have you on the podcast. And um, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and giving a quick little introduction about yourself. That would be great.
1: Cool. Thanks, Seth. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm a, I'm an old man, all washed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, uh, I've I'm about forty years old. Not about. I am forty years old, and uh, I've been uh, teaching kayaking now for about 21 years mm-hmm. and uh past fifth actually this is my 16th season of doing it full time awesome. uh and have made a a pretty pretty awesome little career out of it um and uh my wife and I live in Saluda, North Carolina, which is uh home to the the Green River, which uh a lot of folks are are pretty familiar with. And uh these days I find myself back in school. Um I'm actually Currently working through um, uh, an undergraduate degree uh, in exercise science, and then I, I intend to uh, to move forward into uh, a physical therapy path. Awesome! For a so, forty years old, decided to go back to school. <laughs> no idea. I, I, you know, I guess it's the kayaker in me. I, there's there's always going to be a little bit of crazy up here. Oh yeah. In, in my brain. So, uh, just trying to to hash out some old uh, old goals. So nothing a little wrong bit with about that. me. I, I think that's, that's a good start. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll ask some more questions that, oh, yeah. that might dissect a little bit more. So,
0: <laughs> well, speaking of education, what, did you have any previous education? Like did you go to college prior to getting into that field?
1: I did. I didn't finish. Uh, I actually went to school to be an architect. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not an architect. <laughs> I'm now a kayak constructor. Uh, what happened was is my second year of school, I found, Uh, Our outdoor program at the university Mm -hmm. and actually got a job with them. Uh, So I actually started as as an adventure trip leader and team building facilitator. And that's kind of how I got introduced into outdoor education, experiential learning. Um, And really, you know, I was kind of ambling about in school at that point and didn't really have a ton of focus. I, I thought maybe I would want to do a, uh, a degree in recreation management. They didn't really have an outdoor education degree where I went to school mm-hmm. in Ohio. It was at Kent state university. And I would have really liked that. But, um, you know, by the time I really found direction with that, uh, I was already in deep and I was like, I got to get out of here. And <laughs> I, I, I learned, you know, to kayak at that point, And I was already teaching kayaking um, as well as other outdoor skills. And I was like, hey, this is something that I'd really like to do right now. I was young. I really liked being active and, uh, yeah, it architecture lasted about a week. Um, so it's not kayaking's fault actually, uh, but <laughs> probably kayaking. I, I could partly blame to not finishing my degree the first go around. Um, I always knew I wanted to go back to school. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And truthfully, I didn't really know until the past few years. Um, and I started getting older, my body started not being as happy about the things that I chose to do. Uh, you know, you wear down, um, and it's, it's mostly just, you know, it's less from like, you know, running big waterfalls and things like that. And just daily use and grind, yeah. you know, um, it's the same thing for a lot of folks who have, you know, repetitive motion injuries, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked with a number of physical therapists. And I really, I, I really liked it. It, you know, I have a penchant for biomechanics. It's, I, I really nerd out with teaching kayaking. And uh, so I, I felt like I kind of hit a ceiling of personal growth uh, in our industry uh, and really wanted to, to go back to the classroom. So that's why I find myself back in school now. Oh,
0: hmm. well, very cool. Uh, my roommate from last semester is actually training and studying to be a, a physical therapist right now. Um, he's, but he's very similar to me. He is also very similar to you in the way that he's just always active. Um, and is sadly already currently dealing with those just motion injuries. And he's already had one shoulder surgery recovering from that. And he's going to have his other shoulder. Um, that's yeah. that's fixed so, Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's a big climber. And so this is kind of, giving him time to think and study, but really kind of rough yeah. on people that are I, I've been
1: pretty, this. I've been pretty fortunate. I, I, I never really had an injury that completely took me out. I, I mm-hmm. did once. Um, and it was, it was just from using the body too much. Um, yeah. but yeah, when you, when you get taken out, you know, for half a year to a year, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's depressing. Like it, there's, there's a lot of things folks think about injuries, you know, like, well, that sucks. You can't, he or she can't do what they really want to do. Now, there's a whole nother list of <laughs> problems that come along with that. You know, a lot of those are emotional too. Yeah. Um, I was really fortunate when I got hurt. I, my, my biggest injury was, uh, was a uh, sternoclavicular separation, which is this joint right here. If you like put your finger on your, uh, you know, the bone right between your sternum and your clavicle, that joint, that separated. And that was a <laughs> weird one. Okay. Um, but I, uh, I started dating my wife at that time, and she was she was huge in helping me just kind of keep my spirits up. Um, you know, I, I was still pretty young, and I was pretty uh, kind of coming off that period of my life where I was just young and liberated, uh, so in some ways kind of alone, so it was nice to have a partner, you know, that was there to, to help, yeah. you know kind of give me a shoulder to cry on (laughs) goodness
0: i didn't even know that could be separated right there
1: (laughs) yeah it's actually a really important joint (laughs) it's you know it's it's like the last joint that connects your arm to your body um so when you think about the shoulder girdle you know uh, a lot of folks think about the ac joint or you know where the the head of the, the the humerus kind of attaches Mm -hmm. into uh, you know the clavicle or the the, I see it you can tell I'm a little bit uh, (laughs) uh, addled right now I've been my face has been stuffed in books but lately it's been chemistry so Mm. having a tough time recalling some of the the bones (laughs) anyways (laughs) AC joint that's that's usually the one that a lot of folks have issues with Mm
0: -hmm. yeah I when was that i think i want to say around eighth grade i broke the head off of the humerus and have always had issues with that now like my left arm significantly shorter than my right arm now yeah. so you know as a paddler and climber it's awkward having to deal with that and changing techniques and stuff it's like a full two inches shorter so it's a little bit awkward at times but you know Wait,
1: how, you said eighth grade
0: yeah yeah it was um yeah, I used to race motocross and broke the, yeah, fell pretty hard and broke the head of the humerus off. And
1: how, did, how did they even repair that?
0: Do they, I just was in a sling for a long time because um, it was so fun. far up they couldn't really
1: do anything. That sounds Cast terrible. <laughs> yeah, <was> not fun. <laughs> That's not, not, not fun. <laughs> Needless to say you don't do motocross anymore, do you?
0: I, I do not. No, I do not. Yeah. <laughs> it's a scary <laughs> sport yeah well um, one question I wanted to ask was what inspired you to pursue education like why do you want why did you want to teach in the first place?
1: That's a good question i I don't know that I had you know I didn't have like this uh this epiphany mm-hmm. um, it kind of, again it it's kind of like with that job it kind of fell in my lap um, i actually when i and when i applied for that job i applied you know they had one of those artificial climbing walls and i applied to work at the wall and uh they weren't hiring for that that was all filled up so i actually got hired because um well the the guy who brought me in for the interview ended up becoming a great mentor of mine um i i didn't know what i was really getting into but he hired me because i grew up uh i had some sailing experience and they were trying to start a sailing program. And uh, needless to say, I didn't do anything with their sailing program. I think I went <laughs> out a couple of times and sailed. Uh, but he, he was just starting this program. So that rec center that I worked at was like two years old when I started going to school there. This was back in 99. And uh, so these programs were fairly new. And uh, he, he was, I can't remember where he went to school, but you know he, he was in outdoor ed. Um, so he was a purist when it came down to it, like School of Kurt Hahn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if folks don't know who Kurt Hahn is, he's, you know, one of the founders of Outward Bound. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I think I got that right. It's, it, see, I didn't I didn't study it in the classroom. Everything was secondhand through uh, this boss um, of mine. His name was Chris Sindrick. But yeah, so he hired uh, about six of us and I was one of the first employees and he was pretty adamant about cross-training us in as many different skills as possible, which was really yeah. smart because we were small staff um, and that way we, we could all teach and kind of cover each other. You know, we're all student employees, so, you know, we weren't full-time and I really latched on a couple different things. Uh, the team building thing was a really cool experience for me and probably helped me a lot with my my uh, my public speaking and just being in front of groups and I don't know, thinking critically uh, about group dynamics and, you know, kind of that interplay between people. Um, and I really took that to heart and I really like applied that to everything else I taught too. Um, so again, it wasn't like, I didn't make this conscious decision saying that I was going to be a teacher. Mm. Uh, It was one of those things that was just like, I was, I was drawn to it. I was pretty good at it. I liked people a lot. And um, I had a lot of vulnerabilities that I was struggling with, I think. And it was, uh, it was a medium for me to kind of utilize to, to kind of work through some of those vulnerabilities as well. I found that, you know, my success in, in a kayak or my success as a facilitator uh, largely hinged on how I was doing in the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, it, at that particular point in time, those things were really the only things that I was truly motivated about. So I wanted to do do well, but I wasn't going to do well, Adam, if I wasn't doing well with other things in life too.
0: Mm.
1: So you know, life has a way of kind of taking on little tangents and teaching little lessons, especially uh, in that decade between your twenties and thirties. Um, and I've made plenty of mistakes and had plenty of hard lessons and um, would, it, probably the best years of my life that I would never want to relive. Probably right. the best way of putting it. A yeah. uh, lot, of, lot of cool things though, a lot of big transitions in my life. I made a major move from Ohio to North Carolina, uh, <laughs> you know, and nobody in Ohio like I, what I was, when I was telling people what I was going to do, even, even the girl that I was dating at the time, so she looked at me cross-eyed like you're, you're going to go and do what? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, needless to say, we, we didn't continue dating that much longer after <laughs> yeah. that. Um, so I had these goals, you know, and it was the thing that gave me focus. It, it was the thing that helped me work through vulnerability. And it was the thing that also helped me be social Um. You know, that social side of my life was a really important part of it, too. So uh, I got to move into a community down here in North Carolina that I really uh, I, I thrived in. Um, so I don't remember the original question, Seth, which is pretty typical of, you know, how <laughs> these things go sometimes. Yeah. Um, but hopefully that answers your question. I think you asked, why did I want to teach? And uh, yes, along you know, those lines. Yeah, <laughs> I. I don't know that initially I wanted to, but Mm -hmm. after about three or four years of doing it, I knew I wanted to.
0: I can relate almost perfectly (laughs) to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In the program that I'm very close to completing right now, we have very similar opportunities and because I've been in it for a little over three and a half years. And so similar timeline of me being able to work through insecurities in a very similar way with Stuff like being able to teach um, and facilitate an event at um, the Outdoor Ed Conference up in Brevard. They kind of swap that around colleges each year, but we got to lead a group and do some activities and things like that and kind of be in charge of something. And so that things like that and those experiences are what kind of, like you said, are where you're able to work through those vulnerabilities and inspire you slowly along the way. (laughs)
1: Well, they're they're really empowering or really depleting. Oh, yeah. One one of the two, um, you either thrive in those environments or and grow, or mm-hmm. you you kind of crumble and you know uh, kind of shell up from yeah. from those experiences. Um, you see a lot of personality traits that come out mm-hmm. uh, in those kinds of things. You know that's why I like teaching whitewater kayaking so much. Well, I, I this is gonna make me kind of sound like a sicko. One of the things that I really <laughs> whitewater kayaking is that we get to teach in a really stressful environment and you get to see real people you know there's nothing more real than someone's fear Mm -hmm. Um, and you're you're helping manage that you're helping you've got a great deal of responsibility when you're when you're uh, essentially kind of cradling that nurturing that um, helping them learn from it Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a fragile state you got to take it serious Uh, but I don't think there's anything that feels more empowering. Some, some might even say that borders on manipulation. And I, I, I think manipulation is probably, you know, done with some sort of malicious intent. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no malintent with teaching. You, but you're helping lead. You might even know the outcomes um, before a student ever knows it. Um, yeah. you, you know, in the reason why you, you remain silent sometimes is because, you know, sometimes the more powerful lesson is is gonna come from them discovering it on their own instead of you just you know spouting out words more words more words so uh it's it's yeah it's a really cool position to be in um there's a lot of trust and again it it requires a great deal of social skill Mm -hmm. i'm going to try to not
0: go down this tangent but i was in a fantastic conversation the other day about like deception and manipulation in education and the ethics behind that. And, you know, is it ethical to put a student in a whitewater boat, send them down a rapid um, that they are maybe not necessarily prepared for and allow them to figure it out? Or is it ethical to, you know, maybe you have a student that's really pumped and really excited and they need kind of like a reality check to send them down a rapid that they're also not ready for to allow them to kind of get that reality check of the seriousness of the environment. And Sure. It's just, it's a cool conversation that we had behind the ethics of all of that.
1: You know, I I received some really great advice um, as far as what, you know, as an educator, especially a whitewater educator, what we are charged with. Uh, you know, what, what we have been tasked with. Um, And it was a good friend of mine. He was actually uh, a coach to me uh, in freestyle, but actually more so even just in teaching. But he said, you have to bring your students back both physically and mentally from every experience. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, then you, you really have no right to do it. You have no right to take them. And really that means, you know, the physical stuff is easier than the mental stuff, right? Um, you, what you're really trying to avoid is trauma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if someone has a traumatic experience uh, versus, say, you know, a successful experience or perceived success,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, both get remembered. Although the trauma tends to be remembered more powerfully because, the, you know, the brain doesn't want you to do it again. You know, it's a stress reaction, right? Um, That's kind of part, that's our built-in survival complex. So, you know, if someone goes down through a rapid and they felt like they nearly drowned, they nearly drowned, whether, you know, to an outsider, you know, that was the case or not. You know, if, if they've told themselves in their own minds that that was a life or death experience, then it was. That's all that matters, that's trauma. And, uh, you know, that's why PTSD is a real thing. That's why there are people who are, you know, who have dedicated careers to helping people with PTSD. Mm -hmm. We have to realize that, you know, our environment when it comes to teaching whitewater is a life or death environment. Mm -hmm. Like it does kill people. Um, Now, when you look at the statistics of things and things like that, like the number of people who do have whitewater experiences and then the number of people who actually statistically die from that, it's pretty low, right? But you know, the thing is, is we are, we aren't built for water. We don't breathe underwater. Mm-hmm. So you know, you put our head underneath the water. You know, those old that old software in your brain there is going to kick in and be like, hey, we've got to get out of this. And you know, again, you can you can remember those experiences in in really traumatic ways. And uh, so, you know, going back to your original point, which is, is it ethical to send somebody down a rapid? whether or not they have the skill or not, you know, you know, to make it a teachable moment or Mm -hmm. maybe they wanted to do it themselves. Is really can they come back from that experience? Can they process it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, can and really what we mean by process it is can they rationalize it? Um, you know, any traumatic experience can be rationalized. And it's usually rationalized best in the moment. You know, if you if you have a traumatic experience and you then walk away from that experience and you give that experience, you know, days, weeks, years, whatever, you further stigmatize that because what's going to happen is you have that stress reaction and you're going to try to avoid it and you're building up this false reality in your mind, right? Um, and you're going to continue to avoid it instead of having dealt with it. That's why you know there's a saying, you got to get back on the horse.
0: Mm.
1: And yeah. it, that's that's not just get back on the horse it's the immediacy of it hmm. um but we also have to understand that's not a literal thing either so what i mean by that is you know somebody goes and has a swim on a river and it's kind of traumatic for them it doesn't mean you cram them right back in your kayak ki- in, in their kayak immediately and go 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 their heart rate hasn't even had a chance to come back down their brain is still like swimming and all of this stuff and you know they haven't had an opportunity to rationalize, and in fact, now they're probably even more on edge, and they're more likely to repeat, which then can further, um, you know, compound the the trauma. So really, you know, if somebody has a legitimate traumatic experience in the river, they need time. You know, rationalization is a slow process. Like our brains work very, very inefficiently when it comes to the rational side of things. We are really efficient when it comes to survival, um, and so we have to understand there's that timeline of however long it takes. I, to me, I, you can always use physiological factors to kind of measure that, you know, heart rate, breathing, you know, is the heart rate back down? Is the breathing back down? If, it, if it's gotten back down to that point, then we can really start having a conversation again. Um, probably the best thing not to do after somebody has a traumatic experience is immediately go up to them and say, you know what you did wrong? Uh, that's never a good idea. Um, I've learned that one. Uh, you, know, and, you know, and this stuff didn't just come to me. This is obviously stuff that I, I've, I've observed over the years and have acquired through lots and lots of teaching. You know, I was definitely the idiot. You know I, I remember taking uh, a friend down a section of river who had never been on a section of river, and I, I was taking them down a section that I wanted to paddle, and I was a better paddler. I I had experience. This dude ended up hitting his head so hard on a rock he had a huge like. He still talks about it to day. Hey, you remember that time you tried to kill me on a river? <laughs> and uh, you know yeah. that that was like in the first year year of my paddling. I was just looking for people to paddle with. I didn't mm-hmm. know. Like, in, I was a kid. Like, how was I supposed to know that these events could be like super traumatic? Like, I I probably scared some people away from kayaking pretty early on in my career. Yes. But uh, you know, I think I've done a better job <laughs> throughout my career. Um, and learned really quick, right? Um, so there, there's that too, but you know I still make mistakes too and that's the thing is, as an educator is you really have to understand is like you're not you're not perfect. When a student comes to you I think they expect perfection and uh, that's a really unrealistic expectation and uh, you know I think one of the best things you can do as an educator is you can let people know that you are human that you you don't have all of the answers, but that you are a curious person, that you are, you know, someone motivated by challenges, and that if they've got a question, that it becomes your question, and you're going to help them find the answer to that. I think that's the mark of a good educator, but, you know, again, it kind of comes back to that statement, and, you know, sometimes it's just little mantras that help us remember, like, all that stuff that I just said came back to what my, my buddy Billy said to me, which is, Chris, you don't get to be an educator unless you can bring them back both physically and mentally from every experience. And some, some days that's easier uh, than other days. There there are days that, that are really, really tough. Um, But that's, that's what I go into every day. Um, And that's kind of how I think about it. I, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I ask myself, all right, do, do we know what we did today? Um, And we'll usually have, you know, a good, a good period of time at the end of a lesson or something like that where we kind of process it.
0: Yeah. That that's definitely relatable. Um, I can think of some specific experiences where like very specific instances where I think that a certain person did not necessarily come back fully mentally from an experience. And now still knowing them, I think they maybe shied away from a sport or an activity due to that. Oh, absolutely. experience
1: yeah I guarantee we we meet people that are dealing with that every day yeah. you know in, not just in whitewater kayaking but other experiences in their life as well we're, we're a society that does very poorly with trauma and any sort of um, mental distress mm. I think that's becoming more and more obvious and coming to the forefront of conversation more and more often you know the the old adages of suck it up or mm. you know uh, any, any number of, they're, they're probably more misogynistic than, than anything else because it's male dominated a lot of the time, but uh, you know, any of those, those old sayings of, you know, like packing those emotions away and just kind of gritting through it there. Don't get me wrong. There's a time and a place for those things where you have to, right? Like if you're in a life or death situation, you're, it, you don't have time to be emotional. It's time to be gritty. It's time to, to work through it. But you know, overall, you know, I in the whitewater community, especially, uh, I can't tell you like, you know, you get these big releases. You know, we got we've got one coming up in February. Chioa always releases in February, and I always hear about people going off the couch. Of course, you know they haven't been training all winter, and they go and have an absolutely terrible day. And you know the way they deal with those emotions at the end of the day, they go and stand around the fire, and drink a lot and probably don't talk about things, not truthfully anyways. And, you know, it's more about propping, you know, themselves up, which is also, you know, it's a good thing. That's a defense mechanism in a way, right? Um, But propping themselves up so that they don't look weak in front of others. It's okay to be weak. Like we have moments of weakness. Um, You know, again, we're human. We aren't perfect and we weren't you know, I don't think we were ever meant to be perfect. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what makes it beautiful is that it's the struggle. Um, you know, we didn't get to where we are by being what, what we are now. Like we, there was this process, mm. right? And it all started from that first time we tried to walk. And when we learned, when we tried to learn to walk, we, we fell far more than we ever actually walked. So, and we forget that, you know, and kids didn't care by the way, when they were learning, <laughs> they had no ego about it. But, you know, we start to create this sense of self. It's probably somewhere in middle school where things started to get weird for most people, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, I think child child and uh, adolescent psychology probably tell you a lot more about that stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, speaking about the the process and you were kind of talking about the old sayings and stuff in the nitty gritty. Obviously experiential education has changed a lot in just the past 20, 30 years. You know, you've, you've been in this industry for long enough, I think to see change, how do you think it's changed maybe specifically for the better, but maybe some ways that it hasn't, if any, or, you know, what are, what are, what are some really obvious changes that has happened in in experiential education, I'd love to know.
1: I don't, you know, and I don't know how deeply immersed I, I'm in and true, like what I would call, ex- I, obviously there's a very real element to teaching kayaking that is experiential learning. It's a pure sense of mm-hmm. right? But, you know, you, you've got like, I, when I think of experiential learning, I think of like the Outward Bounds, I think of the knolls. Yeah. Uh, those those traditional schools you know, you have the School of pet salt, you have the School of Han. Um, you know those big names that you learn if you go to if you go to school for like outdoor education, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: I don't know like how that's changed yeah. um, because I haven't been dramatically uh, immersed in that uh, from a whitewater perspective. Things have changed, you know. You, all you got to do is like look through the history of our sport. Um, you know, you used to really have to prove yourself before you were to step up to the next level, yeah. right? It, it was somewhere around, you know, maybe it was the mid '90s or early 2000s where, you know, there was the big boom in the whitewater world. And I'm I'm going to speak to whitewater world specifically because it's the world I know best. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, know, you have a drop off after this big growth. And you know, everybody in the industry was trying to brainstorm like why, you know, what happened, like what is it? What, you know, a lot of it came down to accessibility, right? Um, which wouldn't necessarily explain the boom. I think their boom that they might be looking at was more of a financial boom as opposed to you know, a true like participation boom. But um, yeah, it, you know, back in the day, back in the day, you know, you really had to prove yourself before you were able to step up to things. Now you've got things like, uh, you know, the advent of the paddling school back in the 80s, really, and early 90s, really became a, a gateway for folks to not not necessarily have to prove themselves, but they can go to the school and be like, well, I took some classes and now. I'm going to go out and work on this stuff. And before that, it was the club, right? Clubs actually existed more so as like, um, they were almost like racing clubs. So Mm -hmm. you had all these clubs across the United States and slalom was the big thing. And it's why you're not supposed to take backward strokes and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, Old, old, uh, antiquated ways of teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, But you definitely had to jump through some hoops. And then, you know, paddling schools came in try to make things easier kayak design change became far more forgiving um the way we approach things and talked about things well we don't we we want to make sure that they stay in the sport so we'll make sure that they do whatever they have to do or we'll do whatever we need to do to make sure that they stay in the sport I don't know like I I I feel like there was kind of an kind of a a code of conduct if you will that kind of got you know foggy and you know in the past i don't know 10 15 years maybe it's been discussed a little bit but there really hasn't been anybody that's been like hey you know this is this is something that we really need to do um so folks have some success uh this is this is what we really need to sell like is a method if you will right nobody agrees on a a method and it doesn't mean you have to agree entirely but you know I do think um, sticking to our methods has changed. I think as a sport specifically, we've become I, I wanna I wanna word this uh, correctly because this is a, this is a big topic that you know obviously has some sensitivity to it as well. But you know, there are some things that you just have to experience, like. As a as an educator, for, for example, you know, when I first started down here in North Carolina, I was taught to rescue every paddler, no matter what. Oh, oh, they flipped over. You better hand a god them and get them right side up. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like that really does a disservice to a student. Um, and also then you have a question of is the student even in the correct venue? Like if they're if they're needing rescued all all the time, mm-hmm. it, are they, are they in the appropriate place? You yes. know, a lot of the time, the answer is no. Um, also, additionally, if you're teaching and you're having to rescue all the time, am I in the proper venue for teaching? Um, but also, when you start rescuing all the time, what message are you sending somebody, right? You know, mm-hmm. Oh, what we're doing is really, really dangerous. I need to rescue you. Uh, you need me here by your side in order for you to do this. You know, and then you get this crutch, um, you get this uh, dependency. And really what education is supposed to do is it's supposed to liberate a student, right? You give somebody knowledge that they can then take that knowledge and, and go and apply it. So what I started seeing was a dependency as opposed to you know, a liberation for students. Hmm. Um, you know, I also didn't like the message of you know, flipping over is a bad thing. Like Mm -hmm. for me, I I was a playboater like learning in (laughs) Ohio. That's all I really had. I I needed to go and find a play spot. We didn't have these big long river runs. Mm -hmm. So I was flipping over all the time. Even before I knew how to roll, I was surfing and I was really good at swimming and I didn't have anybody there telling me otherwise. Yeah. So, you know, I obviously took into account, like, where am I swimming? Is there a hazard down? You know, I I knew all the basic hazards. I was given some information. And what was cool is the people that taught me let me go, right? They gave me the knowledge that I needed to know. And I, I wasn't going anywhere that was going to put me in real harm. They, they equipped me with skills and that makes it more risk managed. So, you know, I see less of that actually giving of skills and more so this, uh, this tether, this umbilical cord, um, you know, where somebody goes in and they take a class and it becomes this, you know, this one off experience where they're gonna they might have success and they're like, that was awesome. And then they go out and they try to replicate that, but they didn't learn anything. Right. They actually weren't given any skills. And then they have this, you know, crap experience on their own. And they're like, well, I gotta go back and find that magic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, now you got them, you know, you know, basically needing to be uh tethered all the time you know it's the same thing like uh in in the you know the world of mount everest these these folks that are being short roped up mountains and you know claim that they've climbed everest it's like well yeah you did you you actually physically walked up it but you didn't set the ropes you didn't you know set the camps you didn't do all the work that actually comes along with it this all this work that actually is a part of the sport and that's the thing it's like i really saw for a while there education being nothing more than a short rope up a mountain
0: mm.
1: so and that's that's why we personally started that's why lydia and i started um, our school we felt and i felt like i i was more uh attracted to kind of an older school mindset of you've got to, you got to earn your turns. You got to take some of your licks, you know, bumps, scrapes, bruises are okay. That's part of it. You're working in a real environment, mm-hmm. right? these are real things but you got to feel it. You got to embrace that. You know, if you, if you want this experience right here, like if you want that feeling at the bottom of the rapid, then it doesn't come without the feeling at the top of the rapid, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't come without the work. The scouting, the thinking critically, the setting of the safety, and you know our our classes are notorious for being really long days on short sections of river because we really want people to work this process. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know again, I think the mark of a good school then is that students don't necessarily come back. Um, don't get me wrong, it's, we we definitely see return students, but it's really awesome to see somebody I worked with two, three years ago, going and getting personal first descents all the time. It mm-hmm. really is. That means that we did our job. Yeah. And that's, I think, I think that that was the transition or the change that I saw um, was when I first got into the sport and, and honestly, I was kind of in my own silo up in Ohio, but you know, the folks that I paddled with during that time were very, uh they were very methodical they they had a method that they worked and they taught me that um you know it's not this idea of like oh if you swim you got to get your own shit kind of thing it's like no we're gonna help you but you know learn to roll right (laughs) like that's that's an important skill but even more importantly before that learn to swim Mm -hmm. like swimming is a skill and not only that your comfort with emerging with swimming is going to contribute to your comfort with immersion, with rolling. If you're comfortable swimming, I bet you're going to be comfortable rolling, mm-hmm. right? So it's not cutting out any of those earlier skills. Like you do have to understand there is, you know, there, there's, there's, there's rungs to those ladders. So, yeah, and that's the transition I saw. Like again, when I when I moved down here and started seeing how other schools did it, uh, it was like, well, we can just take that rung out. Like, there's no need for that. Like, we, they, that's, that's unnecessary work. Or, you know, maybe that's something that the instructor can do for them. Like, that's not what I, for me, again, coming from uh, a purist as far as outdoor education and experiential learning is, you got to be in it, you got to feel it. And it's got, it's, it's going to be raw and it's not always comfortable.
0: Hmm. So, yeah. So, basically, a logical, more founded progression has developed, hopefully.
1: And uh, it's also understanding that progressions uh, are malleable, um, movable, uh, understanding that folks can check boxes (laughs) and, you know, an arbitrary amount of time on certain things. Some folks are going to be really fast at things. Some folks are going to be really slow at things. You know, the predispositions dictate that to you. So you know, where a progression might look like these really nice little segmented blocks of time, uh, they're actually going to be longer in some areas for some people, shorter in areas for other people. But yeah, it does it does mean that you 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 personally go through a checklist in your mind, like all right, we're going to go work on wet exits in a kayak. Can this person swim? that would be a great requisite skill that usually tells me that they don't mind immersion, that, you know, they know where up and down is, they're not freaking out. Right. All those things like it, you know, it's taking that loaf of bread and slicing it thinner is essentially what it is. But I don't have to explain it to them. Like my process essentially is doing that for me in my mind. Mm -hmm. And they, what they'll learn more so is, the practice or the discipline through action, as opposed to through words. Now, if they want to teach, that's a whole nother problem. And I, I teach people how to teach now. And they, it's very difficult for people to think deeply. Uh, they don't give it the time. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of would-be educators out there who first get into, you know, some sort of certification or anything like that. And then they're like, oh, I didn't think about all that stuff. And they don't want to do the work. And that's fine. But don't teach them. Like, don't do it. You really have to be jazzed about doing it. Because what you're doing is, is really important. Even if it's just kayaking. Like, you're, but you're, you're, as an educator, it's really important that you are fully invested.
0: Yeah, that is one of the biggest things that I'm learning right now. <laughs> and my fiance is in the same major. She's in a class called Teaching and Leading right now. And so she's mm-hmm. co-leading a course, um, intro to rock climbing right now. And she is like that though. She is very jazz. She is willing to put in all the work and I think she's going to make a fantastic educator in the future. But me, on the other hand, I, I have to, I had to learn how to be really, really willing to put in a lot of work and really think mm-hmm. things out when I'm leading and creating lesson plans and things like that. It's, it was, it was surprising, you know. Our major or this industry to a lot of people seems like cop out almost. It seems a little bit on the easier side. I've heard.
1: Well, it's, it's recreation. It's it, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how could it? How could it? There possibly be thought or work involved? Oh, your your job is a vacation. Oh, bullshit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is. We're almost word for word things that I've heard from many people and yeah I don't I don't try to like get on my high horse and convince them otherwise but I just take a second of like no there is a lot of thought a lot of thought that goes into what we do and a lot of debriefing and a lot of personal reflection and it's it's challenging mentally to do yeah. kind of this this stuff so
1: it, I think what can make it even more difficult too is a lot of the time what motivated us to get into it to begin with is it was our own recreation mm-hmm. um you know and that that's one I think one of the hardest things is like kayaking has always been both uh vocation and recreation for me but I I was learning to teach at the exact same time that I was learning to kayak it was a really unique experience so they kind of went hand in hand for me um but you know for folks who really are looking at it as like Oh, this will be a cool summer job. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of places that'll hire you. They're looking for warm bodies to essentially keep people safe. Um, but you know, I think when it comes down to actual educator roles, that's not a summer job. Like you, you know, you think about the level of education that you, you know, you, you, I'm sorry, you said your fiance, right? Yes. Correct. Oh, congratulations.
0: Oh, thank Um, you. you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, but uh, you know the the amount of work and thought that you put into it is is not minimal, and uh, and shouldn't be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, you're dealing with you're learning to deal, you're learning to communicate, and you're you're learning to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't think that I, you know, as far as endeavors in life, that that's one of the greatest endeavors you can ever um, you know go after for sure um there's there's a lot of a lot of merit to to what that outdoor education and education is yeah
0: (laughs) um well you know as we kind of conclude i wanted to ask you one more time if you had any other maybe encouraging little tidbits or advice for Maybe some more of the like, I guess beginner. Let's just call it beginner whitewater paddlers. Um, maybe so the more.
1: paddlers are folks like getting into education, mm. or, or or both. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Get, run. Get out of it while you can. No, it's um, you know for for the paddlers, anyways. Um, you know, is it the juice is worth the squeeze? You know, it took me four almost five years probably before I was actually a truly competent class four boater. Um, I was also really conservative and that was primarily because I was, I was my own paddling partner. Yeah. I broke the cardinal rule. I paddled by myself a lot, but in Ohio, I didn't really have much of a choice. I didn't have people that I could, you know, con into doing it. So I stayed on easier whitewater. And I really just, I really enjoyed the feeling of flow. Um, You know, and I think that seat time more than anything else was the greatest benefit. It it wasn't about, it wasn't about how hard it was. It was more so about duration uh, and familiarity and comfort. So, you know, if you can find joy in the small things and, you know, the actual pull of the current, and it's not truly just chasing adrenaline, then you're going to be a lifelong boater. Um, Be careful. Like, you know, what do they say? The, The candle that burns brightest. Uh, b- burns out short <laughs> There's something like that. Yeah, yeah. I totally butcher that. But um, yeah, you got to be careful about that. The burnout is a real thing. Um, for educators, you know, be all in. You know, if you're if you're really going to pursue something like this, and it doesn't have to be a lifelong pursuit. But if you're going to get into this, you know, two three years, you're going to learn a lot. And you know, in two three years too, if you work for a good organization, you're going to get a lot of training. And uh that training will last, you know, it, it it'll stick with you for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's all worth it. It all has application in real, you know, the real world, if you will. Um, but I, I don't think anything gets more real than you know the raw elements of nature. So uh, I think the lessons you learn are are, are extremely profound. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think more than anything else for for both those groups, duration, um and uh you know kind of a thirst for for um for knowledge if you will not trying not trying to sound too cliche
0: <laughs> awesome well thanks so much um it was great talking with you uh I, that was a very insightful conversation especially for someone like me you know emerging into both whitewater and education i will definitely hold on to some of those some of those lessons so Thanks so much for awesome. coming on the podcast.
1: Awesome, Seth. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. As always, I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions, or you'd like to be on an episode, please reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you again to Bell Kenny and Cole Stinson for their help with our amazing artwork and music.